Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Sylvia Void Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And read my writing on film and a lot more at cupofmo.com. As always, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And you know what else we'd really appreciate? Go over to the iTunes store, leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addicts, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcasts. As always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host. So, celluloid fiends, this is Gabriel Orto. If you want to go ahead and give us a like on Facebook, that would be just fantastic. You can also follow us on Twitter at celluloid fiends. And tonight we are joined by a special guest, and we will let him introduce himself. Hey, celluloid fiends, this is Professor Howe coming to live from the interweb. <clears throat> that was my Wolfman Jack uh, homage there, but no, my, really, my name is Jonathan Howell. And I'm here to talk about a movie that's near and dear to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this will be a fun one to discuss. But uh, before we get into the movie, I, I want to dig into a little bit. How did you get so into film? Uh, film? Oh, well, I mean, I've just always enjoyed uh, science fiction, fantasy, be it uh, books, comics, uh, movies, television, uh, just you know, all sorts of escapism, um, which is also what led me to Dungeons Dragons and... Uh, other role-playing games. And in case that didn't clue you in, (laughs) tonight we are reviewing the Dungeons & Dragons movie. This came out in the year 2000, when actually a lot of other wonderful films came out. And it was directed by Courtney Solomon and written by Carol Cartwright and Topher Willen. It had a budget of $45 million and made $33.8 million at the box office, so it didn't fare too well. And it currently holds a whopping 10% critic rating and 19% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, both of which I thought were far too high. <laughs> so the plot, for those who haven't seen it, is pretty bare bones and easy to summarize. Basically, evil mage Profian forges this magic scepter, which allows him to control the gold dragons. And meanwhile, progressive empress Savini wishes to grant rights to non-mages in Izmir, but the council threatens to revoke her gold scepter. Profian learns of a red scepter and goes after that. And thieves Ridley and Snails sneak into the magic school to loot its treasures, but mage Marina finds them, and when Perfian's lackey Damador appears seeking the whereabouts of the rod, Marina, Snails, and Ridley are forced to flee, and they embark on an adventure filled with dungeons and dragons. So Jonathan, why did you pick this movie? To make you all suffer. <laughs> well, it worked. <laughs> it's, it's getting something of a, a big uh, resurgence in the past few years. There's uh, numerous podcasts like uh, 
can I name other podcasts? Or oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Go for Critical it. Critical Role or The Adventure Zone. Um, there's several celebrities that have come out as uh, being D&D fans. Ben Diesel, Stephen Colbert, uh, Robin Williams. Um, we, uh, so it's sort of a renaissance in D&D. And there is a new D&D movie in the works that is due out, uh, I believe, in 2021. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to go back and uh, look at our past so we can remember our roots and the uh, tribulations that we had to get through to get to this point. And you'd seen this movie before. I did. I actually saw it in theaters when it came out. Ooh. And was it, had you seen it uh, in between rewatching it and I, seeing it in the theater? I don't think I had. Uh, it maybe had aired on the Sci-Fi Channel once or twice. I know the sequels had aired on the Sci-Fi Channel, but I can't recall if this movie itself had been aired on there. And, and Gabe, this was your first time watching this movie. Um, yes, it was. Um, I like games. I play games. Dungeons and Dragons is just a game I've never played. More of a Morton's List, uh, Quest for Shangri-La, Ascension, and Into the Echo Side type guy. But I was interested to see what this movie had to deliver since hordes of people I know have played Dungeons and Dragons that I've known throughout my life. So I watched the movie and I was um, disappointed to say the least. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> confused. <laughs> yeah, confused and... Um, God. This movie's terrible, guys. It, it's pre- it's pretty bad. I think I think terrible is uh, an understatement. I think an epic dumpster fire is is along the lines of, of what this movie is. Uh, but I, I don't play Dungeons and Dragons either. Jonathan, you play. I have. I've been uh, my first exposure to D and D was when I was in fifth grade. I went to a uh, Catholic school's book sale. I'd attended that school the year before. Uh, and going through their books, I found the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual they had for sale. I assumed my teacher had confiscated it from a student and, and didn't know what to do with it, so they just put it in their yearly book sale. Um, and at the time, I just thought it was a book of cool monsters with cool artwork. Uh, so I got it and then started reading it. And uh, then a few weeks later, I was at a hobby store getting some colored pencils or other art supplies and saw their D&D section, and I was pretty much instantly hooked. So my my biggest question after I watched this film was, who is this movie for? Was this a feeble attempt to sort of normalize D&D and make it more mainstream? Was it an attempt to capture the world of Dungeons & Dragons for its loyal fans? What, what was the demographic this movie was made for? Uh, well, I, I do know that uh, Courtney Solomon, who started as the producer of the film, he had been a big D&D fan. And he actually went to TSR, the company that produced, or that created D&D, uh, back in 1991 and asked for uh, the, the rights so he could do a D&D movie. And reportedly they laughed him out of the studio, uh, the office at the time, because he had never directed anything before. He had just opened his own uh, movie studio to make sci-fi films. Uh, but he kept at it because he was convinced he had a good story and could do a good movie. And three years later, in 1994, they gave him the uh, blessing, gave him the, the movie rights uh, to do a D&D film. So it was at least started as something for the D&D fans. And I think that uh, they probably saw it as a way to advertise D&D, get it out there. 
when the movie did finally come out in 2000, I believe that's around the time uh, the third edition of D&D was coming out. So they probably used that as a way to, to synergize uh, advertising uh, the new edition of their game. Uh, what we actually got... Uh, it's... There's... This is a very generic fantasy movie. It's There's very few things that are D&D specific. I mean, elves, they're not D&D specific. Dwarves, evil mages, they're you know, very basic fantasy stuff. There is um, a beholder, which is a big spherical creature with uh, various eye stalks um, in the movie. In the D&D tabletop game, they're genius paranoid xenophobes that have um, genius intellect and uh, each of their eye rays can shoot out of various uh, magical rays with various effects. In the movie, they're basically guard dogs that just run around and, and get distracted easily so the heroes can slip by. Um, and there's mention of a feeble mind spell in the movie, which is a spell from uh, the tabletop game. And I think really that's about it as far as D&D specific things in this movie. So this was a classic case of what I like to call good intentions, bad ideas. Bad execution, lots yeah. of executive methods. Yeah, yeah. like, like we, were, we talked a little bit before this about how much the studio and just things did not fare well for this movie. Yeah, the, um, so Solomon finally got the rights in 94 and was working on the movie. He um, got some big name backers. He got Joel Silver, uh, who produced the Lethal Weapon movies, The Matrix Trilogy, Die Hard 1 and 2, Predator 1 and 2, uh, Demolition Man B for Vendetta, several big Hollywood movies. Uh, Solomon got Tim to, to help back him up and um, I guess through him reach out with other people and, and get people on. Uh, but eventually uh, his backing fell apart for one reason or another. Uh, and then around 97, 98, when Wiz the Coast uh, bought out TSR, the company that published D&D, uh, they sued Courtney Solomon trying to get the rights back for the movie. There's a big protracted legal battle. Um, Solomon had reportedly had James Cameron tapped to direct the movie. Wiz the Coast said, no, we don't want, we just, we want the rights back for ourselves. We don't want anyone else doing it. And so finally the settlement was that um, he could, Courtney Solomon could do the movie, but he had to get it done within a year, uh, and they had to use an older script that had already been uh, approved, but then discarded because they had come up with better scripts. Um, so he had an old script that he didn't want to use, and he wanted to become a director because he didn't have a director, and so he started doing that. Um, so yeah, lots of executive meddling and rushing through lots of deleted scenes in the movie because they could not finish the effects in time. Um, some of the scenes were fairly vital to the movie. There was one when uh, Ridley and Marina are sucked into the map uh, and then later they're spat back out and they're having an argument about uh, the Wraith telling them something. There's supposed to be a scene where a Wraith in the map was going to explain about the Red Rod that could be used to control Red Dragons and uh, the dangers of it and whatnot and they couldn't get the effects for the Wraith done in time. And so they just cut out that scene, but in doing so they cut out, you know, the main plot point of the movie. Yeah, well, and speaking of the effects, if, if Cameron had been on board especially, the effects would have been 
a lot better, but it's hard for them to have been any fucking worse. I mean, they were worse than even Sci-Fi Channel original movies or Xena Warrior Princess episodes. And actually, Gabe has a list of some other films that came out in the year 2000 because you can't even blame this on age. It's not like it, the effects have just it's not, not like, aged well. Yeah, it's, they were, the effects were bad even for, for the, the time. time. Like, uh, me and Danielle were sitting down and watching this, and she was like, when was this movie made? Like, 92, 93? I was like, no, nah, this movie made in 2000. She was like, what came out in 2000? So I just got a list of some movies it's just to compare it to. Some of these movies don't have effects, but you can just see the direction of filmmaking this in this in 2000 so we got Unbreakable Gladiator American Psycho Requiem for a Dream X-Men The Cell we got Oh Brother Where Art Thou Castaway Memento Gone in 60 Seconds The Patriot Scary Movie Final Destination Charlie's Angels Billy Elliot Bring It On Almost Famous Aaron Brockovich Remember the Titans This Congeniality Little Nicky Road Trip and The Emperor's New Groove The Perfect Storm and Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon were some of the movies that I pulled off this list Ah uh, yes The masterpiece that is Little Nicky <laughs> and, and hate to say I, it, I, I um <laughs> I enjoyed Little Nicky more than this movie. Uh, you know, I'm going to second that. I also enjoyed Little Nicky more than this movie. But uh, I think... I have not seen Little Nicky, so I cannot say if, it's, if I would enjoy it better. Well, I, you probably would. And you mentioned Scary Movie. One of the reasons that I... That, to me, I thought was a weird casting choice. I'm kind of curious what you guys think. Because, to me, it tried to shoehorn in this comedic overtone that just didn't mesh with the film. Yeah. Like, I I get where they wanted to add a little comedy to it. But I don't think... Like, movies like this, like, comedy is not supposed to... This is not, like... You can have a little. Well, you can have to, like to lighten the mood, right? Like not. you, you can have like some friendly banter, but just over dramatic slapstick comedy is not something I like to see in a movie like this. And my understanding is that that was also part of the executive meddling. They wanted more comedic slapstick elements, well, not slapstick per se, but because um, in the novelization, which was based uh, more on what was intended. Uh, Snails, Marlon Wayne's character, was more of a, a voice of reason uh, for the uh, Ridley and Marina. And you had mentioned earlier on that this was pretty much just a straightforward fantasy adventure film. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really hit the nail on the head. But I can get down with something that's just a simple genre film if there's something well done about it. And to me, one of the biggest mistakes was the weird comedic overtone. But then also, it didn't really feel like it was there was anything original in this. I kept seeing glimmers of other movies in there, like uh, 
the scene, yeah, oh, Star Wars, like especially the prequel trilogy, like the Senate scenes. I think from the prequel trilogy mm-hmm. were really evident whenever the Empress was addressing the Council. And then there's that one side quest in the Den of Thieves, which totally just felt like it was pilfered from an Indiana Jones set. It's actually pilfered from a British game show that uh, Richard O'Brien was hosting. He hosted a game <laughs> show called The Crystal Maze from 1990 to 1995, where people go through various obstacle courses to retrieve crystals. And yeah, his uh, Xylus was his character in this movie as the, the Lord, Lord of the Thieves Guild and having Ridley go through his little thieves maze to get the uh, red ruby Eye of the Dragon. That was a direct reference to that game show. So this yeah, game, not th- just movies. It was ripping off. It was also TV shows. Did this game show also inspire the great game show on Nickelodeon, Legends of the Hidden Temple? <laughs> <laughs> this sounds very much like Legends of the Hidden Temple. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, all I know is I think Legends of the Hidden Temple had better acting than this movie. Like, to be fair, Jeremy Irons does a phenomenal job, but he he had some bill to pay. He actually did. He was he did this movie uh, in part to raise funds to refurbish a castle that he had just bought. He bought uh, Kilco Castle in County Cork, Ireland, <laughs> and so he used this money. Uh, he needed funds to refurbish it, and now it's uh, nicely redone. As uh, I was reading an article about it the other day, actually, uh, it's, it's yeah, he completely refurbished it. It's quite nice now. Yeah, well, he was pretty much the only watchable character in this fucking movie. So, oftentimes, on the podcast, we like to talk favorite character. Who was your least favorite? Who do you think did the worst job? Marlon Wayans. Uh, I actually think it was the Empress. Like, I, I think Marlon did the best he could with the material he was given, but I think it was just a poorly written character. So I don't really think we can blame him for That's that. True. I think, uh, but I do think his his inclusion, like that character being written in there well, was, was like the worst. I the character. I'm not yeah. saying it was the worst actor. I yeah. just didn't like the character yeah. that was portrayed. The Empress was pretty God. bad. She was so wooden. She was not very... We heard she said that she wanted to make uh, Izmir, is that the name of the country? Yeah. More equal because as it was at the beginning of the movie, mages were on the top and everyone else was, you know, basically slaves. Though you wouldn't really know that from looking at the movie. It looked like just a regular, you know, fantasy medieval peasants class system type deal. Um, uh, that was something from deleted scenes. Uh, it would show mages treating peasants as less than human, as you know, just subjects to be experimented on. And the reason that Ridley hated mages so much was that uh, some mages lobotomized his father and stole some of his inventions. Yeah, none of this was explained. None of which was, yeah, really explained in the movie. And uh, the Empress, she had the plan to uh, make Izmir more equal and uh, give equal rights to the peasants. But And this was treated as this huge, world-shaking thing. She was a crazy crazy woman for wanting this and but she never really went beyond that uh until she brought up busted out her dragons and fought people but so gabe do you think if any of that had been explained and in the movie you would have enjoyed the film better i feel like i would have at least appreciated it a little more i do enjoy a good 
plot and a good story. But the one thing they fail to do in this movie is properly tell a story. Agreed. Yeah, it, the, the narrative is just, it's pretty shoddily put together. I actually don't even think that even if all that backstory had been included, I would have enjoyed this movie more. I think I would have just been pissed off at its longer runtime. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it, it, saving this film is, is a difficult feat. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was worse than the prequel trilogies. It was, it was pretty brutal in spots. But I, I do want to circle back to the effects that we talked about. Like, clearly the CG was not inexpensive. So why was it so bad? I think mostly because it was just rushed. Because, like I said, part of the, the lawsuit uh, dealing with that, they had to get it done within a year, which is not very long. I mean, I would think. In the, in the, in I mean... Compared to movies like... Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and other things you may see it trying to reflect a year to make a film like of that magnitude is not long at all no uh, but speaking of Lord of the Rings one element that I did like because I feel like we've really ragged on this movie and I feel like it deserves the shitstorm that we're giving it but I did, I did like the locations. Some of the locations were actually pretty cool, and from my understanding, it was actually filmed on location in a number of spots. Yes, they used uh, several castles in uh, the Czech Republic and uh, Profian's evil wizard lair, which was just chock full of human bones, and you would think, that's a bit over the top. That's an actual ossuary, the Sedlak ossuary, uh, in a Roman Catholic chapel in the uh, Czech Republic. I think I've been near that. I don't think I went in back in the day. But, yeah, I, I actually kind of wish they'd toned down the CG in this movie a little bit more and just relied a more on some of the locations that they shot in because I thought that was an area that the movie sucked less. But, yeah, it was rough. With that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to keep discussing Dungeons and Dragons. There's one small problem. Problem? I kind of committed us to find it. Let the blood from Trust me. I hate when you say that. Don't touch that. Kill them slowly. 
And we are back. We are discussing the Dungeons and Dragons movie that came out in, in the year 2000. And by now, I'm sure we've convinced you to go out and purchase the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. If not, you can stream this movie on Vudu for free with ads if you so choose to punish yourself. So we've clearly, I think, explained that this movie is an epic dumpster fire. So what ways could it have been improved? Uh, well, the setting, I mean, as far as the locations, that was you know, perfect as is. And some of the costumes were really, really nice. Most of uh, Empress Sabina's robes, you know, spot on. A lot of the other costumes, they were like something you'd see on a knockoff of Xena, if that. Um, so it was more time to do better uh, costumes, better makeup effects, um, a more coherent storyline, um, and if you want to be a D&D movie, have stuff from D&D. There are, um, of course, people who play D&D, they're free to create their own worlds and settings and whatnot, but uh, Diaz or Wizards of the Coast has... In, uh, has created several uh, pre-existing worlds that people can play in. There's numerous novels and comic books uh, that are set in these worlds and using characters introduced in them. So if you, you could easily do a D&D movie based on uh, the Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance, or, uh, which are both very uh, fairly standard sword and sorcery type worlds, or Dark Sun, which is D&D but in a post-apocalyptic desert world, or Ravenloft, which is D&D in gothic horror uh, world. Um, Eberron, which is D&D by way of Indiana Jones and steampunk. Uh, so there are lots of options, that, uh, ways a D&D movie can be made that would be explicitly D&D and not just a generic fantasy film. I thought the effects really needed to be worked on. I thought... Uh, Jonathan is absolutely correct. I feel like they could have delved a little deeper into the lore of Dungeons and Dragons, specifically since this is Dungeons and Dragons, the movie. The people who are supposed to enjoy this movie the most are people who play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, at the time, this came out in 2000. D&D was first published in 1974. 
So there, there was over 25 years of lore and setting and characters that could have been used, and they didn't really do that for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I would echo the sentiments that Jonathan Gabe said, and I would add to it two things. One is really toning down the comedy element in this film because I felt like that was unnecessary and didn't fit. And then also I think there was a way to make this a more original and very concretely Dungeons & Dragons movie, which is sort of adopting maybe a Jumanji-type story and even what they did in the Dungeons and Dragons animated series, instead of just having it be a f- generic fantasy movie, have it be that players are sucked into the actual game world. And I think that could have actually been a very successful film, or at least added a note of originality that was completely absent in this Paint by the Numbers film. Uh, there's actually uh, the ending for this film. There, I've heard two different readings of it uh, at the end when they're all surrounded uh, uh, standing around a character's grave um, and then some magic happens and they all turn into fairy dust and fly away and I've heard one explanation is that that was just, uh, supposed to signify that this was a D&D game and that that would open up into players sitting around a table I guess Jeremy Irons would be the dungeon master because he was the main antagonist, and you would have Marlon Wayans and uh, Thor Birch and Zoe McClellan and whatnot sitting around as players. I'm not quite sure how that would work. Um, and the other reading I've heard is that as they were shooting off in fairy, into fairy dust, that was supposed to lead to uh, the sequel that never really happened. But Courtney Solomon, the producer and director, was certain that this is going to be a huge hit and it was going to be a trilogy of movies and it was going to be as big as the Lord of the Rings movies that were in the works at the time and history proved him wrong. You're very wrong. Yeah, I did not pick up on this being players being whisked back into the real world at all. I just assumed it was trying to set up a fucking sequel. Did, what, did you, what did you think of the end I game? Ass, I assumed that it was whisking them off to a sequel. I honestly would have liked the ending where they go back to maybe the room that they're playing in and it being, being the players because in the end, what is this movie supposed to be? A love letter to the players who play Dungeons and Dragons. And I thought that would have been a fitting ending. It would have been an ending I would have liked to see. I would like to see, but it's just not the one we got and it's not the story we wanted either. And when uh, Gary Gagax went out to Hollywood and tried to establish a Hollywood branch office for D&D to create movies and TV shows and whatnot, um, his original idea for a D&D movie was basically, like you said, players being sucked into a game working through that um, that idea became the D&D cartoon that we got but that was originally his plan for a D&D movie and you you did mention the sequels mm-hmm. as the only one of <laughs> this trio that's watched them maybe you could delve into that a little bit uh, yeah okay so Dungeons and Dragons 2 The Wrath of the Dragon God came out in 2005 that was a direct to video direct to sci-fi channel movie um it had one actor from this movie, uh, Bruce Payne, who was Damodar, the fighter uh, main minion for 
uh, Jeremy Irons' profaned evil wizard. Um, I think he was playing the same character, but maybe not. It was a bit unclear. Um, so it was sort of a sequel, but sort of not. Um, and that movie, he was some sort of undead warrior going around trying to something about resurrecting a dragon god, and there was also a story about uh, an empress or uh, princess or something discovering a new form of magic and was going to use that to combat the rising dragon god. And it's been a while since I've seen that, so I'm, I'm probably missing some finer details. Um, but then the third uh, movie, Dungeons Dragons Book of Vile Darkness, came out in 2012. Uh, that had no connections at all to the first two movies and was more of a generic um, evil wizard is rising from the grave as his cultists work to resurrect him and a uh, hero last of a line of noble paladin warriors has to go out and stop this evil from rising up and along the way he teams up with a group of villains who actually work with the cult and he has to disguise himself and pose as a Heartless mercenary himself to go with this group and try to stop them from within, but it's just lots of bumbling. And, and there's one scene where he's uh, in a shop buying supplies, and it's like something straight out of a video game, where you're at the, the shopkeeper, you know, selecting your gear. The real question is: is were the, any of these sequels um, better than the original? Um, I can't speak much of Wrath of the Dragon God because it has been a while since I've seen that. I remember that the Dragon God mentioned and being resurrected was uh, named Chronepsis, which was a dragon deity from the tabletop game. Uh, so there was at least some reference to the games itself. Uh, Book of All Darkness, um, the title itself comes from the name of their evil artifact within the D&D tabletop game. And there were a few more references uh, to the game itself some monsters and, and creatures uh, uh, in the game, but uh, it was about as, it had as, about as much to do with D&D as this movie did. It would be an impressive feat if they were worse <laughs> than this movie. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment, but I do think it would be remiss to discuss the D&D movie without getting into the Elves and dwarves. Yes, we've been talking about humans and humans and humans, and yeah, there, there's more than that. Um, there's not much more. There is a dwarf <laughs> character who, in the theatrical version of the movie, his name is mentioned once, and you would almost miss it. Uh, his name was Elwood, in the, which is not at all a dwarven name. Uh, <laughs> in the novelization, he gives his full name as Elwood Gutworthy, which is more dwarven. Um, and he, uh, I was reading in an interview with the uh, actor, Lee Ehrenberg, who betrayed Elwood um, in an issue of Dragon Magazine, and he was saying that uh, Elwood was supposed to be a dwarven mercenary warrior who doesn't have a war to fight in, and so he just spends all his time getting drunk until he teams up with uh, Ridley and Snails and Arena. Uh, and with the elves, we have Nordra, uh, portrayed by Kristen Wilson. Uh, she was, uh, she's been in a few other movies, she was uh, Lisa Doolittle in the 
the wife of Dr. Doolittle in the Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle movies. <laughs> so yeah, speaking with animals, connecting it is nature stuff. It's, it's sort of a thematic link. Um, and there was also an elven healer, Halvarth, portrayed by Tom, the fourth doctor of Doctor Who, Baker. Which just blew my mind when I saw that because I was thinking, why is Tom Baker in this movie? <laughs> um, so yeah, there were some dwarves and elves. Um, they didn't really interact. Uh, I believe the dwarf did make one disparaging comment towards the elf, and the elf ignored the dwarf. Um, other than that, in the cantina-ish scene, where in the bar there was, I think, an ogre and a goblin and maybe a hobgoblin or something, and a few you know, knockoff Star Wars-esque uh, humanoid critters in there. It was very much a cantina type mm. scene. Like uh, all the all these weird characters are just coming together to eat and drink. It's just it was very much. I feel like that's kind of where they got that from. I'm not. I've never played Dungeons and Dragons, mm. so I don't know. But that's how, just how I felt. It felt like. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, in a game like that, yeah, taverns are the you know, it's the stereotypical. Your characters meet in a tavern, and you you know some mysterious figure comes up to you and offers you a. Quest, and that's a very stereotypical, cliched way to start a D&D campaign. Um, so I guess maybe that was you know, a reference to that. And of course, like you said, the Star Wars cantina, seeing critters trying to uh, introduce the, you know, show that there's a wide variety of humanoid creatures uh, in this world. But it was just so, sh- so short and... You, know, you don't you don't really get a sense of you know what these critters are and you know what the world is. Yeah, I I agree, and I think that's one of the reasons that we probably could have made it until the end of this episode, like wrapped it up completely without even touching on that. Is there's a character that's an elf, there's a character that's a dwarf, but unlike the Fellowship of the Rings trilogy, which I think it's almost impossible to not compare this movie to because it's one of the best fantasy adventure films of all time. There doesn't seem to be the sense of scale that shows these different creatures and these different worlds that all exist within the same universe. And it doesn't kind of delve into the like dynamic between them. And another thing that didn't happen in this tavern scene that happened in actually Star Wars is there was no interaction between the main characters really and the people in the Yeah, it was just the the main characters were doing their thing and then there was everyone else there was no yeah there was no interaction so we couldn't even really get a grasp on how they spoke Mm -hmm. or their culture or how they ran things. It's just they're there. Yeah. (laughs) Look at these wacky critters. Right. Often on the podcast, we've done our favorite films. But I want to do something a little different right now. And I want us to each name our top five least favorite films of all time. All right. I'll go first. Um, And I I have no particular order because there's... Um, all bad kids go to hell. <laughs> um, this movie that we're reviewing right now. 
Um, it follows. Hey, it's a great film. Um, trying to think of some real stinkers. Hashtag horror. <laughs> it's it's a Netflix movie. It's so awful. And um, what's what's another one? Oh, The Conjuring. I'm going to have to put this movie up there, not to give away my rating, but I think we've all sort of given away our ratings a little bit. But yeah, I'm going to put the D&D movie in there. I'm going to go with Alien vs. Predator Requiem. It was it was terrible. Ibiza, a Netflix original. It was it, It's probably the worst movie that I have ever seen, and I've seen a lot of films. XX... There's this anthology film on Netflix. I think it was maybe an indie film, which I usually try to be pretty light on, but it was very shoddily put together. And I'm gonna have to go with Unfriended. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was pretty bad. Uh, yeah, but. The D&D movie, I, I will say, came in a, a close second to Ibiza for, for worst film I've ever seen. But now that we've recapped our least favorite films, why don't we read this fucker? You go first, Mo. All right. I, I'm going to give this a, a half a star. And yeah, I, I'm, like one to five, one to ten. Yeah, one it's, to five. it's one to five. One to five. Yeah, and I gotta be honest, I rounded up here. <laughs> Credit to Jeremy Irons, he did a great job. I, I do His think eyebrows did an amazing job. <laughs> they weren't quite Jack Nicholson eyebrow level, but yeah, yeah, no, they were great. Uh, and I did, I thought a, a few other actors weren't completely and totally awful. I thought Zoe McClellan was pretty good. Uh, I liked the way that she played her character very lawful good. But, oh boy, the the CG is just a, it's a shit fest. The acting is, is wooden. The, the plot is beyond generic. Yeah, I, the, like every scene I was just envisioning a memorable scene from a different movie, whether it was like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Indiana Jones. Yeah, half a star. Um, I gave this movie a one, one star. And I and strictly I gave it one star. I was going to give it point two, But uh, Jeremy Irons, eyebrows, obviously. And just a genuine respect for gaming culture, I gave it the rest of the star. be generous and give it two stars. Jeremy Irons is fun to watch. He was clearly having a blast doing this. Um, and really, it's, it's 
like Mo said, is you're able to watch this and think of better things <laughs> um, and, and ways this film could have been better. And hopefully when uh, the Paramount releases their D&D movie in 2021, uh, directed by Bob Letterman, the guy who did Detective Pikachu, um, hopefully that will be a much better experience for all involved. Yeah. So uh, it, it can't be worse than this movie. Uh, but yeah, thank you, thank you for this big Jonathan. Uh, this thank was this was much. one of the more fun films to discuss. And uh, tell tell the good people where they can follow you. Uh, let's see, I am on Facebook and Twitter and where else am I? Eh, yeah, that's it for now. And speaking of following people. You should head over to the iTunes store if you have not already done so. Give us a rating, leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. You can also check us out on Facebook. Go ahead and give us a like there. And better yet, why don't you suggest some of the movies that we watch? If you do, we will shout you out on the show. You can also follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Twitter. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can check me out at cupofmo.com. All right, guys, don't do anything we wouldn't do. Leaves you a pretty wide berth. <laughs> no, no, I can't prove it. You've got to believe me. Believe me. Take it off the air now, please. You've got to at least. Please excuse the interruption. We're having technical problems. Please stand by. It's time. It's time. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Dark masks, gather round your TV set. Put on your masks and watch. All witches, all skeletons, all jack-o'-lanterns. The third commercial, it's still on. Please, take off the third channel, the third channel. It's still running. Stop it, please. For God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to... Please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.